name is Daniel T, and welcome to the SA Fireside Podcast. Each week, we bring you another fireside chat with an old-timer discussing the questions and topics we compiled surveying the world of SA. You can visit us on safireside.com to hear all the recordings. And if you have any questions or feedback, you can email me at daniel at safireside.com. Sexaholics Anonymous is a fellowship of men and women who share their experience, strength, and hope with each other that they may solve their common problem and help others to recover. The only requirement for membership is a desire to stop lusting and become sexually sober. There are no dues or fees for SA membership. We are self-supporting through our own contributions. SA is not allied with any sect, denomination, politics, organization, or institution, does not wish to engage in any controversy, neither endorses nor opposes any causes. Our primary purpose is to stay sexually sober and help others to achieve sexual sobriety. It's our hope and our goal that this recording will help those old and new to the program to gain more tools that will help further their recovery. And so, without further ado, it's time to hear today's Fireside Chat. Welcome to another episode of the essay Fireside Chat. This week, I sat down with Priscilla from Nashville. It was a great chat. I learned a lot about her and her experience in recovery. Priscilla is sober since the 7th of February 1993. At 45 years old, after two years in therapy, the insanity of the addiction struck again after a work colleague contacted her asking her to come over and watch a basketball game. It did not end well. The next day, she called her therapist and went into share. He suggested she read a book on sexual addiction. The following week, at his suggestion, she went to her first meeting, and the rest is history. So here's my chat with Priscilla. I hope you enjoy it. Thank you for joining me today, Priscilla, on this fireside chat, the essay fireside chat. Uh, I really appreciate you taking the time out to join us. I'm glad to be here. We're going to start out with the basic qualification how it was, what happened, and what it's like now. About five minutes of each, and then we'll go into this, these questions from the world of SA and talk about these different topics. Okay. So I'll pass the mic to you, and thank you again for joining us. Sure. Thanks, Daniel. I, I just would like to say, start saying, just imagine a little girl who's lost inside of her head. She is lost in her world of reading or playing the piano, all those places make her feel safe and comfortable. What's happening around her? She has a lot of grown-ups and she feels a lot of expectations. And she always just feels different from the other kids. She hadn't heard the word lust. And if she had, she obviously wouldn't know what it meant. But she just knew that she wanted to be like the other kids. But in the meantime, she kept reading. She kept playing the piano. I will say that lust popped up for her in the first grade. There was a boy that she really liked and she wanted to kiss him. He didn't want to be kissed. And so she chased him around the playground and got him right in front of the teacher. That may just be a little kid thing, but looking back, I think I was insane even then. In our readings, we talk about our insides never match what we saw on the outsides of others. And lust or stain in her head was a way to make her feel good, to make her think that she was going to be okay somehow. 
she learned all about manipulation and control and being passive aggressive. She learned that from her parents and all the people around her because you weren't supposed to be angry at anybody. It was okay to find a way to get back at them. But it wasn't until the first day of college, I realized I could be my own person. I didn't have to be the good little girl. I didn't realize at the time that my old messages were still deep inside of me. But in college, it was great. I had lots of friends. I was able to be really active. And then I went to a college dance and met the love of my life. I, of course, imagined that we were going to be married. Everything was going to be perfect. And we dated for about a year and a half. I was convinced he was going to ask me to marry him. And instead, he broke up with me because he said the only thing I wanted was sex. And I'm like, but that just left me empty. And so I started dating a lot of guys, including the assistant dean, who was only three years older than me. We ended up getting married. Everything was perfect for a couple of years till it wasn't. He wasn't meeting my needs emotionally. And somehow that little addict that had been awakened thought it was okay to flirt. And I look back now and know that I was having emotional affairs with his colleagues. All that seemed pretty harmless. But as I know now that I started crossing boundaries <coughs> and I ended up having a sexual relationship with the principal at my school. Crazy, just crazy when I think back on it. He, of course, broke it off. One thing led to another. I could go on and on with the insanity. I kept breaking boundaries. It got to the point that it was like, okay, I'm not going to have sex with anybody I work with. Until I found a way to break that boundary, which was I found somebody that did the same kind of work that I saw twice a year in meetings. And okay, that's fine. He doesn't live in state. That's okay. And I, looking back, I realized how through all of that, I used fantasy and control and manipulation. I went down to meet um, this guy looking forward to our weekend together. And he said he couldn't see me anymore because I had forced him into the affair. He was married happily other than me. And I was crushed. I drove back to Nashville and the guilt and shame that had been creeping in all this time was overwhelming. I, I just, I didn't know what to do. I made a decision to see a therapist, but the, seeing that therapist wasn't about my sexual addiction. Even though a friend of mine several years before had given me a, a book on women and sex addiction, which I thought certainly didn't apply to me. And I was seeing the therapist Things were going along all right. And a colleague here in the state uh, invited me to his hotel room to watch a basketball game. I knew that wasn't about watching the basketball game, but I went anyway. The next day I called my therapist and I was just, again, talk about being filled with remorse. He suggested 
reading a book about sex addiction and everything fit other than the part about being sexually abused that didn't resonate at the time. I found out later that indeed had happened. And then he suggested I go to an essay meeting and I'm like, (laughs) no, that's just a bunch of scuzzy old people with raincoats and stuff. Plus I didn't want anyone to know anything about me, but I walked into sure enough, a room full of men. And I remember sitting, hold literally holding onto the chair, looking at the carpet. I was just so full of shame. And then they read the problem. Interestingly enough, I thought they were adding female pronouns just because I was there. Talk about ego. I didn't realize that actually was already in the script. But they did a newcomers meeting. They shared their stories with me. And I realized we had the same story. It was all about an emptiness inside. And right before the meeting was over, a woman came in and um, she wrote me a note. She said, I have to leave. Uh, Call me this weekend. And I I thought, okay, I, I can do that. I can do that. Oh, I forgot to mention, as the meeting had started, somebody from my church walked in. And I'm like, oh, my gosh. He is going to go back and tell everybody that I'm at this meeting. And then the good news is I realized he wouldn't because he'd have to say he was there too. But I called him that night and I said, I can't do this forever. He said, oh, you don't have to. I'm just so relieved. And he said, it's just one day at a time. I'm like, oh, yay. Whoopee. But I started going to meetings. I started working the steps. And I just realized now that I somehow had the notion that if I worked the steps, I wouldn't have any more pain and shame and remorse and guilt. I was thinking that it was going to be like, for folks who know the the Wizard of Oz, I felt like I was going to be on the yellow brick road and going down to meet the wizard. Everything would be perfect. Of course, we know it's not perfect. Though I will say that my worst day today is better than my best day in my acting out. I'm just so relieved to be in a place of some, uh, at least some sanity. I learned, though, that technical sobriety, not acting out, wasn't all there was. That's what I thought I was going to do once I stopped acting out. Uh, In the white book on page 131, it says, once relieved of the compulsion to act out our habit, we may feel cured and start coasting along with our tank on empty. But we still have the same personality defects that energized our addiction, and they're still with us and unattended. They'll take their toll again sooner or later. Why are they still with us? Because they are us. Progressive victory over these defects, not their eradication, is the power of God at work in us. And when I read that, I'm relieved to know that today I've got choices. When I was about three months sober, I walked out and I heard the birds singing. And I'm like, wow, that's so pretty. And then it was like, those birds have always been singing. I just had always been on my head. 
and had never heard them. And it was such a shock. And since that time, and a couple of other things, to me, birds are my way of my higher power speaking to me. Kind of like, I'm here. I'm right here for you. I've learned that spiritual principles are a way of sound living, not merely a way to kick my habit. I've actually been sober for about two years, and my sister was quite ill, and I invited a new priest to come over and to meet her in case he had to say her service. He was really charming. My sister and I loved him. I knew his wife. And one day he called and invited me to uh, go to lunch at our farmer's market. We had a great time. We went, I don't know, several different weeks. And I talked about it at meetings. I was so proud. I had a guy friend. Everything was fine. And then he stopped calling. And I'm like, what's wrong? I sent him several emails and no response. I was crushed. And it suddenly dawned on me, oh, my gosh, I was having an emotional affair. I don't know that it ever would have uh, gone any farther, but I really was horrified. I'd been the good, sober woman, and it's a good learning experience. It didn't matter that I was going to meetings or working the steps. I'm an addict. My brain is always the addicts just lying in wait to sneak in. It was also a good reminder for me that, like it talks about uh, in the book, a desire to stop lusting. And that really had never, I don't think it had sunk in before until as I got more and more sober. I know that what I was had always been looking for was having a real connection, someone to make me feel good about me. And Today, I realize that is having a higher power that's always there with me. I remember some early on in recovery, hearing somebody saying, oh, you had to open the door that our higher power is always there. He, she, our higher power is always there. I do talk to God throughout the day. It's really helpful when somebody's just driving me crazy. My personal little prayer is, okay, God, I'm giving this person to you because what's best for them? I I don't. And it's truly remarkable how that works. Though some people, I get to do that often during the day. But making that connection, stopping and uh, pausing makes a huge difference. Another thing I've learned in recovery is It's true that expectations are resentments waiting to happen. I could go into several different stories telling you about how learning to be able to accept strange things that happen that in the past would have made me crazy, would have made me really angry. But being able to go, okay, this isn't what I thought, but it's going to be okay. And I guess I will share one quick story is, and I'll finish up with the notion about gratitude. I'd found out my social security number was stolen. In the United States, that's an identifying number. And so I went out to the office to see what I could do. And they said, oh, there's nothing we can do. And I'm like, what do you mean? 
And I got out to my car and I was hysterical because it meant anybody had access um, to my information. And as I was driving home, I literally remember thinking, because I'm crying, and I remember thinking, I have hands that can hold onto a steering wheel. I have a car. I can see. And as I was able to do that, I realized that I truly can have more than one feeling at a time. I can be really scared and know that I have things to be grateful for. So for those folks who have been around me for a while know that I believe that gratitude is the way to help keep me centered. It doesn't have to be grateful for some huge thing. It's about just day-to-day things. And so for today, I'm grateful to have a chance to uh, get reacquainted with Daniel to have a chance to share with other people. And I'm so grateful that for Zoom, who would have thought the pandemic would have brought good things, but it's so great to be able to be on essay meetings uh, and have people from all over the world. And so today I have much gratitude and I'm glad to be here with y'all. Thanks. Thank you so much for sharing that story, painting the picture of the little girl. Yeah, emotive and emotional. And it's amazing. There's, there's no right or wrong way that we come in. But once we get in the rooms, we're all, we, we look forward to connecting us and where the similarities are. And I'm going to dive straight into the questions. Okay. So you talked about a few different things. You talked about the addiction to sex. I identify with this a lot. That, that I see them as separate addictions, the addiction to the sex, the addiction to the connection, to the need, the emotional need for someone else to fill me up. Yet the program tells us that we're addicted to lust. How did you, first of all, what is lust? And then taking it further, how did you consolidate all those things in your program under the umbrella of lust? For me, is lust isn't just about sex. Lust is about staying in my head. It can be about anything. It could be Wishing that I had the same new car that another person has. If I'm obsessing about it to the point that I'm not aware of what's going on around me, I consider that lust. Harvey Asher one time told me I was, I really had a bit of PTSD and was sharing with him. And he said, staying in fear is a form of lust because you're not having a connection with your higher power. So for me, lust is a broad category. And I really did think that I came into SA because I was having too much sex. It never occurred to me that I was coming in because I was looking for something to make me feel good about me. To understand lust, I had to get sexually sober. There was, because lust didn't have any meaning for me. It just, you know, didn't. I just knew that for some reason I kept having sex. And I, so I think I had to be sober and I had to be listening to other people and to listen to people sharing, old timer share, they weren't talking about sex. 
in, in the meetings. They were talking about relationships with other people. And so I, I really think for me, I started seeing that what I was hearing people share was that lust was trying to take from another person. And I also think lust covers all addictions because it's somehow finding a way to fill our fill us up. For me, it happened to be sex and or food, filling myself up. So I think lust just covers so many things of ways to try to help our wounded little kid feel better. It's very deep. So you actually, you would agree that lust is a root core disease, core addiction. Yes, I do. I, I just think that somehow people with addictions of any kind, something happened to them early on that caused some emptiness in them. And I think different people, for whatever reason, find different ways to fill that emptiness up. And I think it's lust is, please make me good. Please make me okay. And is that what you would call the God-sized hole? Mm, Yeah, for sure. But who would have ever thought that God had anything to do with it? It's kind of like, it just, I'm a person of faith. My higher power is always up there in heaven looking down. I had no clue that my higher power was right here with me all the time. We'll talk more about your higher power in a bit. So people coming into the program, they have a few questions that they kind of repeat themselves. The, the, the first sits under the banner of I'm different. I, I'm not like everyone else. The, the, the real question is, is there really any hope for me to get sober? What do you say to someone who says, how could I possibly, how someone that did so many terrible, crazy things like I did, is there really a hope that I could stop doing that and get sober? What would you say to someone who says that? I would say, listen to some old timers tell their story. The good news is today, people get in recovery before their addiction really uh, gets too terrible. And I think for me, that's a bit of my ego getting in the way is that I'm the worst. It's kind of like, I'm not good. And so I'm so bad, nobody could want to be with me. And so I think it's just a matter of going, just give it a chance. You might think you can't possibly get well, or that you've done the most horrible things in the world. And the reality is, we're not who we were then. We've all done horrible things. And I I have many more horrible things I could yet do. I just, hopefully, I'm not going to go there. But yeah, I think it's just a matter of listening and just willingness. Just know. But I think sometimes people have to have enough pain. I've heard people come into the meetings and and after a few months, they're gone. Or chronic relapsers. I, somehow, I think people just haven't had enough pain. I know this disease kills. I know people who've gotten into so much pain, they've committed suicide. I, I would have eventually died from a sexually transmitted disease. And it never crossed my mind to commit suicide, but I think it could have gotten to that point. 
So I don't think anyone is actions are beyond redemption. That's a wrong word. I don't want to say that. I don't think anyone, I, I think there's hope for anyone. So I make the decision or the decision takes me over and I walk in the room and I think, okay, this works for others. This will work for me. What do I got to do to get sober? How do I get sober? I think you have to want to get sober. And I would suggest that people, I didn't do this, but I think the notion of doing uh, 90 and 90, 90 meetings in 90 days, is really a great idea or to, to get to lots of meetings and listen. Because I think when you hear other people's stories, it starts to resonate. So that's the first step is getting to meetings. The second thing is to be willing to stop acting out for 24 hours, not forever, just for 24 hours. Say, okay, I can stop for 24 hours and continue to do just 24 hours at a time. So meetings, 24 hours, get a sponsor, start reading the literature. I think those are the main things, but I think you've got to be willing that you want to stop. I think sometimes people come in thinking uh, they're doing it for their spouse. Their spouse said, you've got to get sober or I'm leaving. And if you're doing it for someone else, I think it's a bit harder. Hey, absolutely. You have to do it for yourself. And, and for what about, I had a sponsor today who asked this exact, this exact question. Is it ever going to get easier? What, I guess the question that I would ask that person would be, what is it? Well, he was talking about the, the lust on the street and the lust temptations that seemed to be dogging him. Right. Yes, it does get better. <laughs> I, the little uh, phrases that sometimes seem so trite really do seem to make uh, a difference. But like the first looks on God, the second looks on me. And so for me, if 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 somebody catches my eye, the first thing I'll do is, okay, God, I'm giving this person to you. What's best for them? And to stop and think, okay, that's a person. And then the other thing for me is just look and see something in nature, something to break that connection of looking at that other person. Instead of looking at that person, look up and see a cloud. Look up and see a tree. And I know that to many people might sound trite, but it works for me. It just works for me. Yeah, I told him actually to, to look at the cracks. And he said, oh, okay. Cracks. Yeah, that's good. I like that. And, and then I said, just, just you know, look up when you have to cross the road because getting hit by a bus isn't going to make things easier. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's good plan. Good plan. Yeah. What about withdrawal? What advice do you give to someone facing with the withdrawal? And the withdrawal can be pretty tough, both emotionally and physically. I think that's as hard as it is to make phone calls. I remember early on, I was feeling crazy. And I called another woman in the program and told her what was going on. She said, well, how long have you felt like that? And I stopped to think for a minute. And I went, oh, it felt like for days. And I said, this morning. 
And so to be able to stop and go, okay, it's, this is hard and I can do it for today. I don't have to stay sober forever, but I think making phone calls. The other thing is to make phone calls to other new people in the program, just to check in with them, say, how are you doing? To get out of my own head, to check on somebody else, not just stay in my own downward spiral. And what about the person who's relapsing a lot? What can we do? What can we say to them? I would say, I would say, what's really going on? What I also say to people, what's been going on the last couple of weeks for you? To have them look back. Because usually there's been some, some major thing going on in their life that's causing them to want to find a way out. And and I'll, I say that to people as Let's look back at the last, you know, few days, last week. What else? And usually when people do that, oh, yeah. Okay, that makes sense. And the other thing is I think it just takes people, it just takes what it takes. And, And there's folks that I know, and I'm sure you do too, who were chronic or have been chronic relapsers. And then it finally just whatever it is clicks. And they're like, okay, I, I, I can do, and it's hard, but just to be able to do it just for 24 hours. The thing about the 24 hours that I find is that no matter how much of the mental blank spot becomes a very big issue and it hits them, whether it's on day five or day six, and they get into the cycle of the, of five days sober. And then the man, the mental blank spots, no matter how much they've committed to staying sober for that day, it's gone. And what can we say to them to help them through that? That's just such a good question. I don't think there's a magic answer. I, I One thing I've said to people is if they're feeling like they're going to act out is to literally get up and walk into another room, walk outside, go to break that cycle of your thought. And because I think that's the thing is the again, it's in our head. And so if we just keep staying in our head, it's probably going to lead us to acting out. But I think for me, just getting up and walking into another room, making to take another action, again, just to break that that trend in our brain. I, I think that's something I don't know that that will always work, but I think it will help. Okay, good. So let's talk a little bit about the first step. Am I a bad person? No, I feel like a bad, I felt like a bad person. Gosh, my, my guilt and shame was really overwhelming. It was helpful to me hearing people share their stories because my insides never match what I saw on the outsides of others. And yet when I heard people share stories in meetings, it's they get it and I don't see them as bad. And I think that's the key thing is I, I didn't have kids, but I would hope I'd been a parent who could say, I don't, I'm so sad that you did that. I love you. And let's see what we can do differently. It's trying to remember that my actions aren't me. I didn't have a choice. And so, no, you're not a bad person. 
if you are somebody that is prone to internet pornography is to block all the sites that you would normally go to and see if you can go without trying to find another site. Or if you have been doing chat rooms or so old fashioned, uh, whatever the current thing is and the way to connect with people online or whatever is to go 24 hours without doing that. And, or to go a week without doing that. And if you can do that, you, you probably aren't a sexaholic. But my guess is if you've come to the meetings, you feel like something's off balance. Talk, talk a little bit about the powerlessness and the unmanageability. I think most people get powerlessness and they don't get unmanageability. And before you were talking about how a lot of people come in earlier, really before they're, they're you know, too far gone, but that, uh, but then as you carried on speaking, it makes it actually harder for them to then get the program to a certain degree. But what does unmanageability mean to you? How would you describe unmanageability? Because it's an important part of the first step. Unmanageability for me is realizing that I'm, that I'm lying to people about what I'm doing, that I used to lie in in work saying that I'd gone, I used to have to drive to meetings and I would lie about uh, having gone somewhere and get mileage for when actually I'd gone to uh, meet somebody. And but yet I would put it down as work mileage. When unmanageability is when I'm willing to try to make contact with someone in another car that I'm passing by to try to get them to get off at the next exit to meet with me. Just when you step back and go, oh my gosh, what was I thinking? It's just, and not being able to, not being able to do my work, being able to, that if I'm supposed to be working on a project, but I'm too busy going and checking back and forth, checking on chat lines, or I'm having a hard time coming up with examples, but when you're doing things that you just can't stop doing. Okay. And what about the allergy? Do you have any insight for you into what the allergy means and what is it that you're allergic to? And why do you go back to that thing that you're allergic to? <laughs> I think that it's something it becomes, I think our brain develops pathways and of responses. And so it's like the fight or flight mentality. I think it's the allergy is an example for me. I was watching a TV program. It's like real life vet stories. And I was fascinated, but as I kept watching every episode, I kept thinking, why am I really watching this? It's the same story. And I realized it was the man, the vet that I was just drawn to. It's for me, it's like an allergic reaction. It's kind of like, I can't keep watching this because I'm not watching the story. I'm watching this man. 
And so it's certain things for me. There are some songs I can't listen to because it brings up euphoric recall. And so I think there are certain things that it is like just an allergic reaction. If I keep doing this or watching this, I'm going to get it into craziness in my brain. So I do think it's, uh, and I do believe it's a disease. I, I do believe that. The disease. And for you, is it important that it's a disease? And um, Yes, because I think for me, it helps me understand that it's not about me being bad. It's about me. And if it's allergic reaction, allergies and, and disease to me, are, they're linked together. Okay. So, so I've somehow I've triggered the allergic reaction mm-hmm. and now I have to do this new magic word that I walk into the meeting and everyone's talking about, and I don't have a clue what they're talking about. And I got to surrender it. What the hell does that mean? <laughs> and thought the same thing. It's kind of like, what do you mean? Surrender means that I recognize that I haven't been able to recognize that I can't stop this by myself. It's okay. It's kind of in the old time Western. I give up. My hands are, I know I'm powerless, but what do I do with it now? And it's I have to be willing to, it's kind of like step three was hard for me for a while. Let me, sorry that I'm jumping around. Step one was easy. I definitely knew I was powerless. I did and do believe there's a power greater than myself. And then to turn my will and life over to God, that seemed really hard for me. And I understood that, but it really wasn't until I started doing some Essanon work and talking with my sponsor, I think I felt like surrendering felt like I was really vulnerable, that I was all out there by myself. And her description was really helpful to me. She said, imagine that God's leading you in a dance. You're not all alone. You're saying, okay, I can't do this by myself. And my higher power is leading me. And so I'm willing to let go of that, that last little bit of rope that I've been holding on to. I'm not going to die. There's like a safety net. And surrendering means I can take a deep breath and let it go. And in practicality, how do you surrender? Practically. I think practically for me is I write about it and like just whatever's in my head is okay, God, I don't understand what surrender means. I know I don't want to continue calling this person up and I, I know that I don't want to do it. And I'm still looking for ways to let that go. And so I guess surrender means being willing to listen to suggestions from other people. Not thinking I have to solve it all by myself. It's, okay. I, I don't know what to do with this. And so 
going and listening to other people on here's my situation. I don't know what to do with it. So I think by admitting that I don't know what to do with something is I'm surrendering it. Uh, So we're going to change tack a little bit. You're sober nearly 30 years. How do you stop from becoming complacent? Because my brain is still crazy. It is just, and I still go to meetings. I always learn something, whether it's somebody who's got many years of experience or a few months, it's something that somebody says resonates with me. And because my attic brain is still, I mean, it's alive and it's just in the background. I, I will say that sometimes I'm really, I have some shame about being sober almost 30 years and not being in a relationship. My old thinking and my old brain says that something's wrong with me, that I'm not in a relationship. I do think for, I don't know, many years, I I don't think I realized it, but I was sexually anorexic. And now I believe I'm open to a relationship. And because of my age, not I, I like my life and I'm not willing to go on to like a dating app. And I am open. I stay active and I do things. And I do believe if, if I had an opportunity, I would be open to relationships. On God's time at the right time. Which is interesting because the next section is relationships. Obviously, you're not living in a bubble. You're interacting with people. So you don't have an intimate, close husband relationship, but you're still having healthy relationships with other people on a day-to-day basis. So how have you, how has your program helped you to have those relationships and to make them healthy and to keep them healthy? This really touches on a real uh, key issue for me is I I get really frustrated uh, when I hear of men's meetings who tell women, oh, there's other, there's women's meetings. You need to go to those. Or when there are women who go, oh, we need just a women's only meeting. And both of those things make me crazy. Because if I'm going to live in the real world, I'm going to have to react and live with men and women and have healthy relationships. And I'll hear people go, oh, we can't talk about that with a guy. I I want to be able to have a real conversation with whether it's a man or woman. Matter of fact, I have a sponsee right now who's in a dating relationship and it's, he's not in a program of recovery and they have real honest conversations. And she says, and I agree, she wouldn't know how to do that if she hadn't been able to be around men and women in recovery. And so I want to be able to interact with people in a day-to-day basis and be real and not superficial. Yeah, I think it's critical for my whole recovery has been having women in the rooms with me has been a very important part of my recovery. De-objectifying is the word. Critical part. I used to worry 
when I first started going to meetings, uh, I talked to my sponsor and I said, I'm afraid it upsets men. And she said, they get to talk to their sponsor. They get to work their program over it. That's right. That's right. Just as you did. Or if a handsome guy came into a meeting, it's, oh my gosh, what am I going to do? And I realized I can sit in a different room so I'm not looking directly. Or I can, we're lucky in Nashville, I could choose to go to other meetings. But you're right, working my program. Javier once said that we came to a turning point, can literally just be moving your chair off an inch. That's right. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. And talking about getting into relationships, I'm sure you've probably sponsored a lot of a lot of people over the years that have that came in single or got divorced and then got married. When's right. the right time to get into a relationship? I don't I certainly believe that it's important to be having worked through at least step nine and step work. I also I've heard people say you shouldn't get in a relationship till you've been sober a year. I, I don't know that there's any magic number, but I do know you. it's important to do step work and to be sober. And, and I think it's really hard. The more and more young people that come into the fellowship, which is great. I think it's hard because society has expectations that you're in a relationship, that you are supposed to be with your wonderful partner forever. And I think that's unfortunate because I think there's a lot of people that just, I think you have to learn to like yourself before you can get in a relationship. So I I think it's important to, to be sober and to work your steps before you think about a relationship. And then before you do one-on-one relationships, I think it's important to go out as a group, hang out with a group of recovering people. Because being one-on-one with somebody, I think can be pretty tricky. So being in a group of people, I think is very healthy. Thank you. I think it's important as well. Yeah, I think there is no right time or wrong time. And it's about the person really ultimately, isn't it? Yeah, But I think the common theme is that a good sobriety is a starting point. Yes, yes. And and I guess that comes as a result of working the steps as well. Tell me about your higher power. You mentioned before that you, you couldn't believe that he was right here with you. How is that relationship? How do you see that relationship with your higher power? I really see my higher power as a friend that... I used to think talking about things like that sounded so phony and so fake, but it's, I do. I just, not all the time, but I have conversations with God and my relationship, I think with God is really, it's nature based. It really is to me, my higher power. I think that's one reason I can feel my higher power really around me because I've, I've see God in, in nature and animals. And so that helps it feel more real to me. So what does a spiritual awakening mean to you? Let me give you a couple examples. When my father passed away, a dove sat on the lanai, the balcony 
for a week. The same thing happened when my mom died. The day my sister died, a mockingbird sat on my chimney and sang all day. When I was in California and staying in a cabin, I got word that my secretary had died. I took my prayer book down to the ocean. There were some big rocks. And, and so I was just sitting back in the rocks and two seagulls came and sat on either side of me while I was there. And so I, I really think that was the, the first thing that I really think that was an awakening. It was kind of, oh my God, God really is right here. And then the other thing was when my sister was diagnosed with cancer, she wasn't supposed to live more than a couple months. She had a, a wonderful doctor who was determined she was going to live to see her grandchild born. But I believe it was the power of prayer that helped her accomplish that. And that really was, I'd always believed in prayer, but that to me was just a real evident kind of thing. So I think it just comes gradually when you start seeing things happen in your life that you go, wow, huh? So yeah, I think it just varies for everybody. I don't think there's a definite example, at least for me. And you mentioned this earlier. Do you think that was as a result of gaining sobriety that you were able to see these things? Yes. Yeah. I would never have, I might have commented on it or seen it, but I don't think it really just connected, would have connected with me before. I don't know. It's kind of like hearing the birds. I don't know that I would have paid a bit of attention to that bird singing on my chimney all day. If I hadn't, if I hadn't been sober and being able to know that there was a higher power. Yeah, that's really beautiful. And it also moves us straight into the next section, which is about sobriety. So what does sober mean to you? And for you, is there a difference between sober and sobriety and recovery? You also mentioned a little bit about that before. Oh, definitely. There's definitely a difference between sobriety and recovery. I think being technically sober helps get you to recovery. And I I think that recovery is more than being technically sober. I think that means your willingness to be of service to other people, to connect with other people, and just the willingness to continue to to be connected to the fellowship. I, I don't think it's like working the 12 steps and you're done. I think anybody, most people can get sober. And I think the sobriety will last, will be continuing if they are moving into recovery, into a taking action, not just words, but doing action, being available for other people, doing, and I do think service work and being available is important. What does emotional sobriety mean for you? How do you experience emotional sobriety? I think it goes along with uh, 
going back to the notion of the difference between being sober and being in recovery. Emotional sobriety means that I'm seeing myself and other people as individuals and as human beings. And I think the example I used before, too, of like the allergy or the triggers, when I'm seeing somebody as an object to be lusted after, then I'm not very emotionally sober. I'm looking for something to fill me up. And that's, so I think emotional sobriety is about staying in the moment, recognizing that you have feelings, not dismissing feelings. I think that's important as well is to just recognize that we have, that I don't have to push down feelings. So another thing that we come into the rooms and we hear a lot about on day one and we, we don't really have a clue what we're talking about here is the steps. How would you describe the steps to someone who is new? I think this, I would describe the steps as a way to, to process the things that have been going on in your head, to be able to look at your life that, you've led and the life you want to lead. So you can recognize, I remember in the promises hearing that we don't wish to shut the door on the past, forget or shut the door on the past. And I'm like, I do want to forget that. I don't want to remember it. And I think it's important with the steps that you're able to get a clearer picture. And so I would say to somebody, it's a way to maybe understand what's been going on in your addiction and ways that we can move into a different way of thinking. So it's a bit of a formula, maybe. I think it's a structure of a way to, yeah, to understand and to be gentle with yourself and to move into uh, a new way of life, a new way of thinking. And is there a right or a wrong way of doing the steps? No. I did the steps uh, before Step Into Action was put together. So I use a big book. I don't think there's, I think it, I think there, the importance is doing the steps, not the right or wrong way of doing it. I think it's just a matter of putting pen to paper. And I've also been working with a new sponsee who initially, as she was writing answers to the questions, it seemed pretty black and white, pretty this and this and this. And I suggested her to her that she think about when she was writing to have a sense of what she was writing. And since then, her answers, you can tell she's feeling the feelings that are coming up. So I think it's just helping somebody be able to work on the steps and think about the impact it had on them. Not just like, here's, yes, I did this. And no, I did that or didn't do that. And just to 
really stop and think about the behaviors and, and the impact. And then what to do when the steps are done? Are they ever done? I Most days do steps one, two, and three for sure. Just And I do uh, many fourth steps or tenth steps all the time. So I don't think the steps are ever done. I know some people go back, if not every year, then every couple years and rework the steps. I haven't done that, but I do, I really do think it's important for me to, I call it a mini four step, but I guess it's really a 10th step in a situation. And inevitably there is a pattern. The reason I'm reacting to something is based on a pattern from before or feelings. So that's helpful to me. And over the years, you've uncovered new patterns and then moved on to different problems. Yes. It's like the onion is never completely peeled. There's always more layers to take off. It keeps growing layers. I know. It's like, how can that be? Quit. I'm done with that. But yes, there's always more layers. So at the core of a lot of what the steps are for is to uncover and discard these character defects what is ego the core of my problem is is ego what's blocking me from god is ego the defect that's at the core of it all mm-hmm. i had not thought about that before that makes some sense since many of my character defects are about judging other people that what i think that says about me is that i don't think i'm good enough it's what is the expression? I have a large ego with an inferiority complex. So I do think uh, many of our character defects do go back to ego of some form or another. Usually for me, it's been about the negative. If you ask me to tell you 10 bad things about myself, I can tell you in a heartbeat. If you ask me to tell you 10 good things about myself, it would take a minute. And so I think for me, the ego in some instances is more about how bad I am, not how good I am. So, yeah, I think the answer, the original answer to your question is yes. I think it does go back to that. Thanks. And so the final topic is around meetings. What am I supposed to share about in meetings? I think that it's important to I think it's important to share what's going on or your feelings and to not stay in the problem to always end in the solution or ask for feedback. I'm stuck in this problem. I don't want to stay stuck in the problem, and I'm open to feedback. I'm not sure in your shares that you should be extremely graphic. I think that's something to share with your sponsor. I think you can speak honestly and in general about something that's really sensitive, and I don't think being graphic is helpful to anybody. I think there's a difference in honesty and being graphic. Matter of fact, somebody, I don't know, a year or so ago was sharing something that I just had to raise my hand. And 
And there have been a couple times where I've actually left meetings if somebody was being too graphic. It's just, I don't need for my serenity to be totally messed up. So I think it's good. I also think it's good for people to not just sit, sit there. That makes me really crazy. And I'm really judgmental about that. Don't just sit there and never share. I think it's important for everyone to share at least a little bit just to get out of their head. What does it mean to raise my hand though? Does raise my hand mean that the person has to stop speaking or that I have to give them a moment for me to get out of the room? Like you said, um, for me, raising my hand means uh, it gives them a chance to stop speaking. And if it continues, then I just leave. I don't raise my hand again. I just leave. And I've been a couple times when somebody's shared something too graphic and I've raised my hand. And afterwards, I've had guys come up saying, I'm so glad you did that. And I'm like, you can do that, too. So I don't think, I I think it's important for us to keep meetings safe. And if that means raising my hand or if somebody's, (laughs) I think I'd probably try to control me. If somebody's stayed in the problem and their share, I try to share next and talk about gratitude. I, I know that's a character defect for me. I can't help it. Good. So we're going to finish with three questions that I'm asking everyone that I'm speaking to. The first question is, what's the most important thing for you in the program? The fellowship and the connection, not staying stuck in my head. And the other thing that's important is the recognition that Nashville's really unique in that we have several means a day. And again, through Zoom, I'm so excited to connect with people all all over the world. So that connection. I've had a chance several years ago to travel to several different countries in Europe and in Mexico and Colombia. And it's just so gratifying to have that connection with people that get the problem and that it's you it we're not unique we're not terminally unique so it's a fellowship i think okay and have the 12 promises come true in your life yes that definitely sometimes i have to step back and go look at the promises but they have they have That's beautiful. And finally, what's the greatest gift that you've received from recovering in SA? Learning to love myself. I think is the biggest one of knowing that I may be flawed. I'm also, I'm pretty darn good person. And that I have a lot to share. And I think that I've learned that through the program. I would definitely agree with that. It's been a pleasure hearing you hearing you share and hearing your experience, strength, and hope today. Thank you so much for joining us, Priscilla. Thanks, Daniel. I've thoroughly enjoyed it. I'm glad. Thank you. Thank you for listening to today's SA Fireside Chat. We hope you've enjoyed listening and gained as much as we have producing it. Anything you've heard on this podcast is strictly the opinion of the individual speaker. 
The principles of essay are found in our 12 steps and 12 traditions. If you have any questions you would like to pose to today's speaker or a burning desire to reach out to them, you can write to me at daniel at essayfireside.com. Remember, essay is self-supporting through its own contributions. You can donate to Seventh Tradition by going to essay.org forward slash donate. Make sure to subscribe to this podcast or visit essayfireside.com to hear all the previous Fireside chats, as well as the future ones as soon as they're released. May God bless you and keep you until then.